Hello. At CD Media, we are literally the tip of the spear. From Ukraine to the vaccine to Brazil, we've been at the tip of the spear on all these stories early. So if you want to know what's going on in the world early, before the rest of the news catches up, watch CD Media. But you know what? We have to make money. So we do have ads on the sites. But I know people don't like pop-up ads. They don't like ads. It's a problem. I mean, you get them on your phone, etc. If you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no ad subscription, which is a few bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites, not just CD Media, but the Manhattan, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, Armed Forces Press, Tsarism overseas in Eastern Europe, and CDM Espanol if you speak Spanish. So all of these sites are available with no ads. So sign up for our no ad subscription. You can find it on the websites. There's a pop-up and also in the top menu. And, and pay us a few bucks a month. Support free media. Support your children's future. Support the fight against the corrupt media narrative. Thank you very much. And now let's get to our guest. Hi, I'm Christine Dolan, and this is Global Conversations in Plain Sight on CD Media. And we are glad to have with us today and honored uh, to have David Bell, who's become a friend of the show, a contributor to our network and has a global voice that needs to be elevated because David has a unique position having been associated with consulting with the WHO, the Gates Foundation and other international bodies with an expertise in infectious disease, specifically um, malaria. Do I have that right, David? Is it more, more yeah. malaria? Mostly malaria, yeah. Mostly malaria. All right. So, David, you and I have talked about this for months uh, since last May. I have been very concerned about what's happening at the WHO and how much that the legacy media that I grew up in is not paying attention or chooses not to pay attention because of willful ignorance or just doesn't understand the beat. But the people, m m many of the legacy media have reporters at the UN in New York or in Geneva. And the WHO falls under the UN. And you wrote a piece that we're going to publish that goes into the breadth and depth and history of the WHO, bringing us up to the point in time now where there are many countries of the world that want to give up. And it's not just they, they want to turn over uh, the health sovereignty to the WHO, which turns us back in time to a feudal system, as you so well pointed out in your piece and basically enslaves people if they don't wake up and takes away freedoms all over the world and would possibly open the window to, as you also pointed out in your piece, the more power to totalitarian states. And it's scary if people don't wake up. So let's get into the weeds of this. First of all, explain the history of the WHO and the purpose of why it was first created back in the 1940s. Okay, yeah, so, so yeah, it was created um, just after the first, the uh, Second World War, sorry, so the Constitution was written in 1946. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's coming out of the Nuremberg trials and, you know, what happened with fascism in the 1930s and 40s, but also the, the age of the end of colonialism. So a lot of countries in the world, particularly through the Second World War and onwards, were seeing they could break out from mostly European colonial masters and become independent. So in, in that context, it was set up and it's the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written at the same time and came out of the same mindset that um, the world had to throw off the shackles of fascism, colonialism, totalitarianism, but also put in place structures to stop them coming back again. So. The WHO was set up as an international health body to um, its, its structure had the World Health Assembly controls it ostensibly, and that is essentially one country, one vote. Uh, it, it was originally core funded based on um, set contributions based on the GDP of countries. So rich countries pay more than poor countries, but everyone was supposed to be paying into the kitty. And and everybody had an equal vote. Everyone had an equal vote. And they still do, technically, in the World Health Assembly. But all the money virtually came from countries. And uh, it, it was all core funding. So the WHO was supposed to have technical expertise, which would decide where that core funding went. Its definition of health is very broad, includes social health, psychological health, as well as physical health. So it, it's... Um, 
it, it was there to identify the major disease burdens, go after them. So it tended to be low income countries and it tended to be community based health, population health, building up health systems, training health workers, etc. So that basic services could be available. Um, in things changed about 20, 25 years ago, when the idea of public private partnerships came and they brought a lot more money. They brought a lot of private interest and money to WHO. Both tell tell me, what was the catalyst for that at that time? Um, was it because the, the, the UN wanted to collect money? I mean, we know that there are different groups at the UN that say, you know, we'll have corporate leader groups and they'll come into to New York and, you know, they'll, they'll form a club within, but they're basically, it's a donor base. So, I mean, why did the UN feel that they needed to collect money and hence the entities that came underneath the, the UN? I mean, WHO is only one. You have the, the environmental program as another, UNICEF as another. Mm. It's hard to know whether it's a pull or a push. Um, any organization, I think after 20, 30, 40 years, it becomes a bit ossified and um, it becomes, you know, the, the important thing is keeping the institution going, not the institution's original role. And the UN clearly suffers from that, WHO does. Um, any institution does, any national bureaucracy. So you end up with very wealthy, well-paid people, powerful people at the top of these organizations go to the same club as heads of corporations, etc. So it's inevitable that they start to become very close, I think. So corporations gave money, individuals, and there was an increase in you know, inequality in the world, and some very rich individuals came out of the software era, etc. They wanted to give money. It, it can be altruistic, it can be otherwise, but they wanted to give their own money to these organizations as well. So, and WHO... You know, it's hard to say no to money when you always need more for what you're doing. So you end up with a situation where they start to take more and more private money. And this goes not to core funding where WHO decides what to do, but is for specific projects. So we will give money to WHO to do you know, X in malaria in the following five countries. And so WHO will do that because they see the money as good and they end up with people within WHO essentially paid by private money because they're... And taking directions from those people who are the donors, yeah, like the, the Gates Foundation, the Skoll Foundation, yeah. um, Buffett, anybody who wants to give money. And they'll say, we want this to go to malaria. We want this to go to... Um, women and children so different groups so so th there's a designation of money for those projects yeah and it can be all originally with good intent um but you end up with a situation where a donor who is based in one country maybe one person or a small group of people decides on the health priorities of a whole lot of other you know millions of people elsewhere and because they have the money they essentially run the priorities because the people implementing at WHO know that if they don't do what they're being asked, then that money will no longer flow. Right. And, and they, they will lose their jobs, their teams will lose their jobs. So it, right. it, it's inevitable and human that you end up doing what the donors want and not what is necessarily the best for the people at the other end or other people elsewhere who are not being touched because they're not in the donor's interest. So, so I call it the financial survivability of the organization that receives the money to a yeah. certain extent for the specific projects. I know that in yeah. 2005, I was, I was surprised to learn uh, covering human trafficking that built the Gates Foundation was ostensibly working against human trafficking in India, but in fact, mm. that they were that the money that was given went to NGOs to legalize prostitution, which at the time I thought was crazy because of the level of poverty. People would just be selling their kids in India. And then it took us about eight months through the uh, US State Department Trafficking in Persons Office. It was then run by uh, John Miller, who had been a congressman on Capitol Hill, became an ambassador of that office. And it took him eight months to, to get Bill Gates to get out of that. But we later found out that that was really a ruse for something else he was doing involved in, in terms of health. So sometimes it looks good on paper, 
But at the end of the day, it can be nefarious unless there's some accountability. So having said that, we are now at the, at the, this changed about 20 years ago with the influx of enormous amount of private partner, private public partnership money. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved into, I, I don't even know the word to describe it. It has evolved into something very dangerous. And in the next step for having the audience understand this, I guess should be about 2000, oh, 2005 with the international health regulations that you've laid out in your piece. Give the audience the history of that. So they go back well before that. And in the original WHO agreement, uh, constitution, there is the idea that they would be advising on you know, pandemics, etc., or outbreaks of disease. Um, but the, 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 it was essentially the WHO would advise countries and would help coordinate you know, information, etc. But it, it was a small part of the WHO's role and it was... Um, yeah, because pandemics actually are, are very rare. They, they happen once per generation for the last hundred years and they kill very few people compared to other diseases. So uh, they're, they're a small disease burden and they're appropriately put that way. But you can make money out of disease, uh, you know, out of pandemics as we've seen with COVID. It's created a record shift in wealth. And that was seen a long time ago, I think, with the potential of selling vaccines, mandating vaccines, mass vaccination, it is mass profit. So... And Bill Gates had announced that about 20 years ago, that the next 20 years was going to be about, you know, pandemics, vaccinations. He, he really got on the bandwagon about, about 10 yeah. years ago. This was going yeah. to be the decade of vac vaccinating everybody on the planet. Yeah. And of course, vaccines aren't intrinsically bad. And there are a lot of vaccines that have had a big impact on health. But people have forgotten, and you know, I was taught in medical school, and everyone in public health should know, the vast majority of improvement in health in wealthier countries is not from vaccination. It was pre-vaccination, and it's better living conditions, better nutrition, uh, better housing, Sanitation, Sanitation clean water. Yes, and that's what it has the biggest impact always on public health. And then things like vaccinate and antibiotics also had a very big impact um greatly reducing deaths from pneumonia and that's why we don't have bubonic plague etc anymore but you know so sanitation to a lesser extent antibiotics and then vaccines came in at the end of that when life expectancy was already near where it is today so um is I'm, it fair to say as bobby kennedy has analyzed um that the pharmaceutical industry has taken over here in the United States, captured FDA. Is it fair to say now that there's enough evidence out there that we can say that through the private public partnerships in the last 20 or 10 years, that the pharmaceutical industry has taken over WHO within the UN? Well, we can say they have a huge um, impact on global health and far more than they should have given what their products do and what their interests are. So there's not just WHO, there is Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance, which is... Which was um, explained to the, explained yeah, to the public about that. It was created by private interests, including the Gates Foundation and by um, certain countries. And it's a financing mechanism for vaccines specifically. And, and again, then, you know, there's, then there's also... Um, Gavi and CEPI, CEPI and the involvement yeah, so of the World CEPI, Economic Forum. Yeah, CEPI was set up in 2017 at the World Economic Forum meeting by the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, Government of Norway, Government of India, a few others. And that, that is specifically for pandemics, which is interesting because if you look at the history of pandemics, why would you have a whole organisation for pandemics? So again, it makes no sense from a disease burden, but it makes all sorts of sense if you're interested in making money out of investments in pharmaceuticals, particularly vaccines, because, you know, you can make a little bit of money from measles vaccines, etc. But the big one is if you can get a mass vaccine out to a whole population quickly, then you're essentially printing money. And you're going to do that if you have people concerned enough about an outbreak that they think everyone should be vaccinated. 
So there are you know, the whole basis of global health and the organisations around it is skewed towards this relatively small burden area in terms of health burden, but very, very profitable area. And that's inevitable if you have this corporate and private influence. A, a, a vaccine company, its primary purpose is to make money for its shareholders, and illegally it has to be. So they have to maximise profit if they're going to give money to WHO, CEPI, etc. And they can actually, you know, WHO is run by the countries, but CEPI and Gavi, they can have private interests on the board. So these are set up because it gives them much more direct influence on where the money goes. And then CEPI and Gavi, because they, you know, they have similar budgets to WHO, so they can also influence WHO apart from the, the direct influence through funding. So uh, this, uh, you know, it allows them to very much control the agenda and... Um, and let's talk about how they control the agenda because the explain to people what it's like to work for these, you know, for, for the UN, for WHO. I mean, these people have diplomatic passports. They have generous uh, housing allowances. They, their, their kids, some, I think I, I have heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you may have even mentioned this to me, that some of the kids' education is paid for? for yeah, very much so, yeah. It's paid for up to um, PhD level in university. Uh, so if, so if I'm about 75% or so if you're higher up. So... Yeah, so they're very good education benefits, um, which, which, benefits, et cetera. Which and, would create an environment where people would say, I don't want I don't want to rock the boat because yeah, I don't well, want yeah, to give course. up the benefits. Yeah, they're good salary. So people can go into WHO with and they do with very good intentions of doing good, et cetera. And and you end up you're on a very good salary. It's you know, nice business class travel, five star hotels, et cetera um and very good health benefits and you know you may be from another country you end up say in switzerland where you know the life you know the um everybody you know, everybody it's a very nice lifestyle, lifestyle yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so going back to your home country may be a big step down in terms of you know quality of life and quality of life right. for your children your family etc so there's all sorts of incentives inevitably to um stay, go along, you stay where you are to go along to, yeah, to keep your mouth shut or to at least not be so radical that you you're risking your salary and your position and I think inevitably with institutions if you're there for too long you end up seeing the institution as so important that you have to preserve the reputation of the institution. We were talking earlier about, you know, issues in the UN where they've covered up, you know, child abuse, etc. And you see it in other organisations. It's an example where you know people may see that as wrong, but they see the reputation of the institution as so important that they would do anything to protect that. So, so we, we, you end up with a sort of ossified institution and with very strong influence from outside to do what certain donors who have a responsibility to their shareholders to make profit want them to do. So WHO has morphed over the years from very much a community-centered public health organization based on the highest disease burdens to an organization that's very much directed by donors who have clear conflicts of interest in selling commodities for health. So you know, we've even seen UNICEF now, which is there, you know, has always been for specifically children's health. They're, implement, they're the implementing partner for WHO for the mass vaccination in low middle income countries of, for COVID. So, you know, most or much of their resources now goes to a disease that essentially affects almost exclusively old people in its severe form and to which almost everyone is immune. To, you know, there's no good public health justification anymore in most of these countries for giving any COVID vaccine, really. And just for the audience's sake, I want them to know that in August of 2022, the UNICEF did come out publicly, these are their words, not, we're not, this is not speculation by either David or myself, 
they said that their intention is to vaccinate the children with mRNA, uh, focusing on sub-Saharan Africa starting in the fall of 2022. And we did try to get a uh, interview with Catherine, um, who runs UNICEF, who's married to a former Obama uh, man, and uh, she is the brother-in-law of somebody that's, that's connected to this industry as well. So it, it's 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 very incestuous. It's who you know, it's relationship. It's a lot like Washington, D.C. that I know so well. It's a lot like the people that I know on the, on the international stage. It's a lot of its relationships, but it's people that are going along with it basically because of the benefits that are involved. So that I, I think that covers the history of it, but, but get us up to, because that was 20 years ago. And then in 2005, um, the international health regulations came on the scene. So explain to the audience what that is, because that, that will bring us up to where we are today, where we're going back and we're, we're actually, if everybody doesn't wake up, we're going back to the feudal system. And they need to understand that is going to be uh, a model for international slavery captured by these people. So, so 2005, the international health regulations, how did that come about? Yeah, so it came about after the SARS outbreak and <clears throat> that got people essentially, it got the public health world interested in pandemics. Um, so, and you know, part of this is just human. It, it's, it's a lot of public health people see as not very exciting. You don't get in the media, et cetera. But something like an outbreak like SARS, you do. And a lot of people got excited about that. So there's a lot of push to <clears throat> create, you know, parts within WHO and elsewhere, you know, organizations elsewhere focused on these pandemics. And the international health regulations were, they were sponsored by a number of countries, particularly Australia, but they were to strengthen the position of the WHO as the sort of almost the sole arbiter of what should be done in an outbreak but so th there are provisions in the the um ihr from that time which you know really aren't very compatible with democratic countries but essentially it, it's to give who power to and, and most of it is still recommendations uh, not to dictate what should be done in a health emergency and to strengthen the surveillance around that. Um, so, so then with COVID, it's, um, we now have a set of amendments to that. So there are two things going on. It's, um, there's amendments to the international health regulations and the international health regulations, I should have said, have force under international law. So they're a treaty between countries. So, and originally they needed two thirds of the World Health Assembly to pass to get that, they got it. Now, to amend let me, that journey- let, let me ask you at that point though, when they had the two thirds to pass it in 2005, did mm. the countries have to ratify it back in, 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 in their Congresses? So most do, yeah. So it depends country to country, but a lot of, or most countries need to ratify any treaty. Okay. All right. Um, so, that, so then, because of COVID, it changed. May it, the the tone of it changed from recommendation to binding. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do with the amendments, which uh, have been drafted over the last couple of years, and will go toward to the World Health Assembly in May of this year. So, there's also uh, people talk about the WHO treaty. That's a separate thing that all be discussed at the WHA next year, but it essentially is trying to do the same thing. There's two mechanisms going in parallel. So the amendments, and we know that the Biden administration's, uh, there's a woman at HHS uh, here in the United States who uh, I'm presuming that she's not the only one that drafted the amendments here in the States, but this is to give the health sovereignty underneath, I mean, this is giving away freedom and sovereignty here in the United States under the auspices of health to the UN. Um, and then there's a whole model behind it called the you know, yeah. one, one Health, which covers plants, animals, and humans. But let's talk about if, if, if these amendments, when they vote on them, and there's a lot of, lot of meetings behind closed doors now, if they vote on them in May, 
it t does it take two thirds of the world? No, it takes fifty percent because it's an amendment. Fifty percent. Um, okay, yeah. so it's so it's, so it's even less numbers. Uh, mm. And tell us about what those amendments mean at the end of the day if they pass, because you yeah. outlined in your piece that we're posting. I yeah. mean, extraordinary detail that makes it simplified for people to understand. Yeah, they're actually amazing. Um, you know, if you dig into it, it, it I mean, it, it is almost stupid in a way um, to think that people, that these will get through. But unfortunately, as we know from what's happened in the last three years, um, stupid things can happen quite easily. So the, there's a number of areas. So, so they change the IHR and they, they, they widen the scope. So they extend it from an outbreak to a risk of an outbreak. And that means, you know, if WHO and specifically says the director general, he doesn't even need to refer to a committee or anyone else. So a single person can decide that something identified somewhere in the world has a potential to be an outbreak of international, an emergency of international concern. So he can declare a public health emergency of international concern, which then um, triggers all these other things that are in the, in the IHR, these other powers. So he doesn't have to refer to anyone. It doesn't have to be a real outbreak. No one has to be sick. And the large surveillance mechanism is being put in place with this. And part of the amendment is that every country has to have a strong surveillance network and that is going to be checked every couple of years by WHO. So they're putting in a process for reviewing every country's mechanism and instructing them to improve it, etc. So there's going to be a very large surveillance mechanism, which will inevitably find new mutations of viruses because that's what viruses always have done and always will do. Mm -hmm. But now any change in a virus potentially can be deemed potent, you know, a risk of an outbreak. And we saw with, even with monkeypox now, they could declare an emergency internationally with just five dead people in the whole world. So it, this will need even less than that. So um, this, so this, this and, and there's no real oversight to this because, I mean, there, there's no accountability. It, it, it's just no. sort of, and no. and also that there's a there's an interplay here for the six regional directors. So you have the director general yeah. right now is, is Tedros, and you have the six regional directors underneath them, and they can say, for instance, in Nebraska, something something's happened because they're looking for surveillance, which means they're looking for mm -hmm. testing, which means they're looking for digital. Uh, who you run into at the grocery store, at the gas station, who may have X, Y, and Z, and then they decide that that monkeypox is because you've been in the same gas station, you may have to be quarantined or something like that. But they, they, when we talk, I mean, this is no longer conspiracy. This is on paper. This is a plan. This is what they want to do. Um, and so we're, we're talking about exposing them in their own words. They basically are pushing for surveillance operations in countries, whether it looks for the digital, whether it's contract tracing, I, you know, I, I don't know how mm. they, I know they ultimately want to do it by digital. Yes, yeah, so it, it mentions that, but um, yeah, and it, it, it's, they're very clear in what is intended. So, and again, it will need countries to ratify it, to make it law within a country, but um it also you know a country, this allows a country to say who is instructed so we have to do this and even if it's not ratified okay spend the next 12 months or 24 months in the courts trying to prove that yeah so they're very specific they so in the amendments for instance there's a excerpt in the original ihr that says full respect for the dignity human rights and fundamental freedoms of all persons uh, they've crossed that out Mm -hmm. And which that's, is, that's which essentially is from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is really important, really fundamental. So they've taken that out and they've replaced it with principles of equity, inclusivity and coherence, whatever that means. And then they base them on um, differentiating them according to the economic and social status 
of the population. So this is this is really fundamental. It's removing the UN's basic human rights precepts, which is every person is equal and has equal rights, whatever the situation, and changing that to uh, I actually don't know, you know, equity, inclusivity, coherence, whatever that is, and then basing that, 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 that and then saying that that depends on your economic and social situation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's it's specifically saying we are no longer all people are no longer equal, and so these amendments should not be interpreted in the light of all people having equal rights, but of all people not anymore being equal. And so, it's extraordinary because the, the very essence of the human rights error, and I'm not going to say it began in 1948, but it definitely was defined coming out of World War II and the Nuremberg trials. You know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was the essence of the UN at that time. So they are contradicting their, their own mission statement in so many words. No, that's what's so important here that people need to understand. Yeah, this isn't the UN doing the UN's thing. Mm -hmm. This is the UN undoing the basic precepts on which it was formed after the fascism and the colonialism at the time of its birth and putting back in place where we were in the, say, the 1920s or the, you know, 50 years before that, where it was, you know, the, the very original, in fact, health, international health agreements were between European colonial powers and some of them were still still had slavery etc and you know WHO was supposed to get away from that but this is turning it back to a point where that is the case and I mean it actually there's really interesting things in here as well it so it, it defines it's not just talking about outbreaks it's talking about um it, it's extremely broad in what this constitutes. So it talks about, for instance, health technologies as being intellectual property or know-how, etc., as well as actual things. The, the amendments will allow WHO to tell a country to give its IP, its intellectual property, and manufacturing know-how, it's very specific, to another country so that they can produce those products that belong to the country. It's and it instructs countries to change their intellectual property laws to allow this to happen. So WHO, it's not just taking away human rights, it's taking away even intellectual property rights and the, the basis of you know what we've developed for commerce and so on over the, the last century. It, it's um, That's why I think it's an extraordinary document if you dig into it. it it's undoing the very basis of the legal systems that we've developed um, for individual rights, for corporate rights, etc., And it makes sense from the point of view, if you think it's being pushed by these companies that are multinational corporations that don't really have any national jurisdiction over them anymore. So it's very much serving their interests, but it's not serving the interests of um, the member states of WHO or certainly the, the people within those states. Or even the shareholders of the corporations that WHO wants to give away their intellectual property. Exactly. In yeah. some form. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So, so you know, the and you lay this out beautifully in your piece, and, it, it's, and anybody, I want the audience to know, people need to read this piece because it goes into detail and they can, see, they can actually see the language in the different articles and what's crossed out compared to what was included in it in the WHO before and in the Universal uh, Declaration of uh, Human Rights. So, David, the recourse here, all right, this is another thing that people don't understand. Nobody can just go out tomorrow morning and, and sue the UN and the WHO. I mean, they're, they're no. setting it up underneath an umbrella that's not really covered by law uh, in many, many ways. They're excluded from, yeah. from, from being held accountable. Yeah, so there's two levels. One, actually, in the amendments, there there's a censorship provision. So they in, instruct, and in, in, in the amendments, it changes, actually, the idea of a recommendation to, it's essentially an order because the country's undertaken the amendments to, um, you know, to implement anything recommended by WHO. So 
they, they include disinformation, misinformation, which means you know you won't be able to push back on a lot of these provisions. And the provisions, uh, I'll just before I answer your question, Chris, I'll go into you know. It, it lays out specifically what WHO will have power to do, and it includes controlling travel of individuals, confinement of individuals. Um, which is quarantines. Quarantines. Which is trying to do here in the United States, state by state. Yeah, instructing them to have medical examinations, instructing them to have medications such as injections. So it's very, it's very clear. It, it's, you know, it's mandating things around health for individuals in countries. And and this comes back to an individual in in Europe, in Switzerland, has the sole power to put this in motion. He doesn't even have to consult the community. It's extraordinary to me because this is slavery. This is medical trafficking. This is controlling. It's coercing. It's defrauding. They can lie to you. We already know people have been lied to because of over COVID. We know that they used uh, from the University of Washington to the Imperial College in in Britain. We know that they use algorithms that didn't work. We know that they that they skewed the the uh, testing for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine when they wanted people not to use it. We know that they took ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine literally off the market uh, in many instances where, where pharmacists couldn't get it, people couldn't get it. You know, they, they, they uh, called these vaccinations when they're gene therapy injections. They said that they were safe and effective, but they're not safe and effective for all. They didn't acknowledge the adverse uh, injuries. They still to date have not acknowledged the vascular and neurological injuries, which we know that are there. The VAERS reports is underreported. I mean, this whole thing is a sham. So here we have people who are part of the problem creating a new model under the WHO that creates even more of a constraint for speaking out because they want the rules and regulations about misinformation, disinformation. Yeah, misinformation, disinformation. And, you know, if you cast your mind back a few months, you know, saying that the vaccine, the mRNA vaccines for COVID didn't stop transmission was misinformation, except there was never any evidence that they would stop transmission. And now they never did this, any research. That's no, and, the well, and now we have this bat peddling that uh, they were never intended to. Well, then why was it misinformation to say that mm-hmm. they weren't blocking it? Yeah, uh, you know, right. the, the, all the the wording around mask work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, yet another Cochrane review has just come out. Version of the, the Cochrane review on masks, community masking, showing no significant difference for respiratory viruses in community masking. Um, you know. These are the gold standard levels of evidence. And the, the CDC has done a meta-analysis showing the same. The WHO did a meta-analysis showing the same. Yet if you said what was found in these gold standard measures of what works in medicine, you were condemned as misinformation, disinformation peddling, and you would be shut up under these provisions. So, you know, there are examples that it makes no sense at all from a public health point of view to have any of this. It's not about public health. Censorship is not about public health. It's about control of an agenda and the control of the agenda. If you look at the transfer of wealth over the last three years, it's hard to see that that's not intended to do more of the same. So the charade is on uh, because where sanitation, nutrition is really part of the part of the elements for public health versus public private partnerships created under the auspices of the UN entity WHO for profit, ultimately for these people who are the donors. It it seems quite corrupt. It seems quite corrupt to me because it's a charade to the public. They're saying, though, this is for your benefit, when in fact it's for the benefit of a small group of people that are pushing for something like this, whether it's through Gabby, CEPI, the World Health Organization, the UN, the World Economic Forum that is also pushing this for the people who benefit from surveillance, the people who benefit. I mean, why don't they have why don't they do, you know, diagnostic on how many people don't have clean water all over the planet and do something about it? You know, to me, that would make more sense. So you can argue it's corruption. You can argue it's gross ignorance. You can argue that it's a power grab. You can argue that 
it is, you know, well-meaning, yeah, well-meaning people have absolutely no idea what they're doing and don't listen to you anyone. Can't, you can't be, yeah, but David, um, David, I'm too cynical. You can't have that many people with that with the, that level of knowledge, education and degrees. No, no, no but a, a lot of the people involved in this are just going along. Mm -hmm. um, willful ignorance. Willful ignorance or they feel powerless or, you know, they would like to do something but they need that salary and they need their kids in good school or they don't want to get kicked out of the country that they're in etc there's all sorts of human drives in this that are being used to get this through um but they're selling their soul if they believe in democracy which comes under the umbrella of the un yeah. freedom for people then this is the exact opposite and they're selling their soul yeah if you believe that public health measures are okay when you cross out you know, full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of all persons. If you believe that you can cross that out and state that rights should be based on economic and social um, status, context, then, yeah, you're not interested in human rights. You don't believe in the fundamentals of human dignity. You don't believe in true equity and equality between people. Uh, and, okay, so you admit you don't, you know, you want a world where that isn't a thing. You want a world where we should go back to the colonial era, era because, you know, people in Europe are smarter and know better than people in Asia or Africa, and they should run those countries. I mean, that's what the mindset was of a lot of people 150 years ago. We we're supposed to move beyond that. The media is supposed to be on the side of, you know, getting rid of that and supporting human rights. They're nowhere to be seen on this. No, and people have to remember that the uh, the decolonialization of Africa really started to begin for the independence of the countries back in the nineteen late nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. So you know the, the yeah, you know, it's a very hard struggle, and this is this is reversing it. Uh, you know, this is like bringing back the East India companies to run these countries. Mm -hmm. it, it is. It's amazing. What else? What else do, do you want to say about this? Because I, I can't, you know, when we post this, I, I want you to, to to point out now, you know, what to focus on in your piece because it really it, it's long and it's beautifully written and it, but it gets into a lot of detail and and you 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 pointed out um, very pointedly that, that you know what people should focus on in terms of you've crossed out the language and you've compared it to the new amendments. You know what, what was there and what's now going to be eliminated, which is extraordinary. Yeah, and WHO is, I mean, to their credit, is very forth, you know, they're very open about this. You know, the documents are off the WHO website. They, they're not hiding this. And I think that tells you a lot. It tells you that the people running all this are so confident in what they're doing. Um, so it's, it's not hidden that they want to do away with these fundamental um, statements about human rights. It's stated there for everyone to see if they go to the website. So I think they know that they, I mean, this will probably go through in May um, because the media is not paying attention to it. And, you know, I think there are reasons for that. I think there are reasons why the media has acted as it has over the last three years. And, cheered on, you know, the, the mandates and cheered on the mass unemployment, cheered on the, the mass malnutrition in Africa in, in the name of doing what these large corporations and wealthy individuals have been asking us to do. And they, you know, they sponsor the media. There's all sorts of things going on here, influences, which are going, which mean that people can be very open about undoing the fundamentals of our society and there's no pushback or almost no pushback. So uh, I think, you know, people need, politicians need to be aware of this and there are politicians in you know, most countries who still want to do something good. They can't stand by and let these really fundamental changes to modern society go through. Um, they, you know, they need to think about their relationships with these organisations that are pushing this. Um, eventually, I mean, you know, there's a strong move to 
um, defund, get rid of the WHO. Um, I, I would say we need international health organizations, but they need extremely strong rules around conflict of interest, extremely strong boundaries on which they can't possibly go. And so we certainly need massive reforms. The, 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 you know, the first thing is to really try to get understanding of what is behind these amendments and the changes that they will bring. And even if they're not ratified in this country, they'll, they'll have very strong influence on politics here, but they will be ratified in other countries and you know, strong influences can pay parliaments to ratify. So they will change, particularly low middle income countries that can less resist this will, will be really open to exploitation. You know, I, I can't help but think right now uh, in the last, I guess it's the last week or 10 days, that uh, Janet Yellen from America went over to Africa and talk, talk, talking to some African nations about, you know, the U.S. help financially helping them through the World Bank, who has also joined this this morass of, of, of what WHO wants to do. But Janet Yellen was over there, you know, talking about the infrastructure deals that the U.S. could uh, finance. And I thought to myself, she, she's like the CCP in, in Africa, because that's I, I've witnessed that, you know, for the last 30 years across South America and Africa in terms of the Chinese going in and building infrastructures and creating these, co I mean, corrosive financial deals. And I thought Yellen's going to, to Africa. And I thought, wasn't well, that interesting? Because since May, when people became more last year, when people became more aware of these amendments that uh, the Biden administration has certainly taken the lead on with 46 other countries. And the Africans were the ones that kind of push have pushed back so far because they, they they don't want they they don't want this. They know that across Africa, they have been used as guinea pigs medically by the WHO in some instances, you know, for the injections, which ended up, you know, whether for tetanus um, was the, was the door that was the name of it, tetanus in Nigeria, but it turned out to be infertility that Pfizer was caught up in a, in a case, you know, back in two thousand I think it was two thousand nine. So. This is this is serious stuff because if people don't wake up, but what can the average person do other than I want them to read your piece? I want you to come on all the time, talk about this as this goes because this is a war zone. Of if people remain ignorant about this, it will happen, and then they're going to say, "How did that happen? What else can they do?" Yeah, I think that probably it, it's the best way for me is to go through national parliaments. So to tell your local, you know, to make it clear to your local members, etc., that um, they should be aware of this, that you're concerned about it. Um, the, there are various groups around who are trying to push back on this. So find and join them if you, you know, you want to do something active. Um, in, which ones, David, which ones are good? Because some people are going to create these and they're going to be really on the other side of this. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a member of Panda, um, Pandata, in, which is an international organization. I'm senior scholar at Brownstone Institute. Um, but there are several other organizations that are active in this. Um, different organizations are doing different things. Um, you know, I don't think here I can say, you know, which one someone should join, but there's, you need to get away from mainstream media and look at other media that are actually talking about what's going on in the world. And from that, you, you will find, you know, ways that you can be active in doing something about this. But I, th I think in the end, it's people in, for instance, in this country, in Congress, need to be made aware that the populace is aware of what's going on. And so they should take an interest because in the end, this will be, you know, this will be stopped if there is enough pressure from countries and that pressure has, you know, will come through their parliaments, etc. So it's a slow process. I think this will pass probably in May. It may have a few amendments, but it will essentially pass. Um, what has to happen is that what these 
abrogations of basic human rights, et cetera, can't be allowed to then occur. And they will occur if no one does anything because it's absolutely inevitable because the mechanisms are being put in place to ensure that risks will be found. And then a single person can decide to act on these risks, on those risks and put this whole um, mechanism in motion. So it will inevitably happen and we will inevitably have rolling lockdowns, vaccine mandates, et cetera, et cetera, travel restrictions. And this will inevitably worsen public health overall as the COVID response has. It will inevitably increase poverty and increase inequality because it will concentrate wealth among fewer and fewer hands as we saw through COVID. And it also it will fundamentally change society into, in the end, a really unstable society that has lost its basic democratic norms. And, you know, if we value the sort of society we have, we have to fight for these things. David, thank you so much for joining us. You know, you're always welcome back uh, as a contributor to us and for anything that you write about this. This is something that when I became aware of it uh, earlier last year, I, I said, you know, we have to take this on because no matter what is happening internally in any nation right now or any region of the world in terms of COVID, we have we have other people over over you know at, at, at the international level. No matter what happens in a country right now, they are determined to change the landscape and the mm -hmm. culture of our of our world. There's no there's no doubt about it, and it is in plain sight. It's in their yeah. documents. They're yeah. bold about it, which makes it even scarier. They, they're, they're not holding back. They're transparent. They're not telling us everything, but they're telling us what their intention is. Yeah. And, that and it's something that most people don't want, I'm sure. But most people have to wake up and take notice. Yeah. David Bell, thank you very much. I encourage everybody to read. We're going to post this with this interview. Uh, and so I want everybody to read what David has written. It's beautifully written. It explains it. It makes it simple for people to understand. And they he has the comparisons of what is going to be written out of the um, the language, which is uh, extraordinary when somebody wants to take away universal human mm. rights. I mean, and you wonder why is anybody a member, a country, a member yeah. of the UN when they want to take away human rights? It, it makes no sense. Yeah. No. It, I mean, just that alone is sort of is sort of said. Well, well so who's who's running the country at that point? Who you know? Because obviously, if they turn over the health sovereignty to the UN on these terms, they will dictate what happens in Nebraska. They will dictate what happens in Paris. They will dictate what happens in in uh, Nairobi. They will dictate what happens in Buenos Aires. I mean, they'll dictate what happens in Melbourne. So th this 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 is pretty scary. Uh, if people don't wake up because these people have every intention to do this. David Bell, thank you very much. And we'll have you back soon. Thanks, Christine.